Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf. I am coming to you right now from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, of course, I'm joined by Corey Shockey in Palo Alto, California, Rosa Brooks in a hotel somewhere. Where are you, Rosa? <laughs> somewhere near Philadelphia. I think I'm in what is known as the main line. And for years, I wondered exactly what that was, but I think I'm on it. Or yeah, the main line. It sounds better than it is, right? It's just a well, suburb. And, well, and of this course, hotel room is not that special. And, of course, David Sanger is in the headquarters of the deep state, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> I thought the headquarters was in Washington and that Cambridge was just sort of like a, a suburb of that. Yeah, well, sort of like the sort of like the main line. The headquarters, as you know, <laughs> so is, much worse. The headquarters, as you know, is a silo someplace that Rosa has found for all of us. But but I can't reveal. I can't tell you all about the location. Yeah, exactly. Wait, you can't tell us if you well, can't tell us. The deep state is very, very deep. Oh. And there are many layers to it. And David, yeah. we're not sure you're actually at the bottom layer. Wow. No, I'm pretty sure I'm at oh, the bottom. Oh, we're sure layer. he's at the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm pretty 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 sure that's exactly where I am. Um Ann Arbor has nothing to do with the deep state, I'm pretty sure. Um now, having said that. There's obviously a lot of news this week, and our Deep State Radio nerds are going to expect us to cut right to it. On Monday, uh, there were several major developments with regard to the case against um, the Trump campaign or people associated with the Trump campaign and with regard to the efforts of the special counsel, Robert Mueller, to establish links between the Trump campaign and uh, the Russian government, uh, and also, more more broadly speaking, wrongdoing. And uh, I, th- I think this is an earthquake, and I think it's got a broad set of consequences, and I want to devote our episodes this week to it. The first episode, today's episode, I'd like to focus in on what, the, uh, what, what we think the implications of this are and, and where it may lead in terms of the domestic politics and power issues here in Washington, D.C. And then in the next episode on on uh, Thursday, I want to look ahead to the president's trip to Asia and what this may mean for that. But guys, as I look at this, you know, when the indictments initially came out, there were a lot of people going, well, this is financial and this was tax issues. Uh, and one of the reasons they filed the indictment early was that there were a statute of limitations associated with these and Mueller had to get this in there. But if you read the indictment, the indictment starts off at the very top and it says, you know, Manafort and Gates, who was his deputy, um, were working for Viktor Yanukovych uh, in, uh, in, in Ukraine uh, and, and, you know, 
it points out that Yanukovych was pro-Russian. It points out that Yanukovych fled to Russia. It points out that Manafort had an office in Russia. Uh, and I don't think this is accidental because, of course, it's a follow-the-money case. And the $75 million that are referred to here, it's a lot of money. And, and, and Yanukovych was in Russia providing this money or his agents were providing this money for a good portion of it. So I do think it's establishing a tie there. And then, of course, simultaneously, uh, it was revealed that a member of the small core foreign policy team of the Trump campaign, uh, a guy named uh, Papadopoulos, who I, I think is 30 years old now, was 29 years old during the campaign, um, and part of this very tiny group that was actually doing foreign policy for the campaign, was arrested upon returning to the United States a few weeks ago and has cut a deal with the U.S. government effectively, admitting to some crimes uh, in exchange for information. That seems to be the implication of what he's saying. So Mueller seems to be on the case. This is clearly the first move in a series of moves. And I just wanted to get a, you know, your takes. So let me start with you, Rosa, um, Associate Dean of the Georgetown Law School. What do you think all this means? Well, I think you're right, David, that this is the first in what will probably be numerous other indictments down the road. Um, and and I also think that you're right that this isn't this isn't just that incidentally Manafort was caught out in a little financial wrongdoing. Uh, I think that there are there are sort of two pieces to the indictment. The indictment itself makes pretty good reading. If any any of you out in deep state nerdland want to take a look at it, uh, the two pieces. One is just that this guy was a crook. Uh, in about a zillion ways, he was a crook. Uh, he was not declaring money on his tax returns. He was laundering money through a very large number of dummy companies uh, in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, he was spending all of that laundered money on, you know, fancy stuff, fancy houses, fancy art, fancy clothes, fancy cars. Um, he was not declaring all the things he should declare when the FBI questioned about it. He lied through his teeth, he, et cetera, et cetera. So number one is that he's a crook. Uh, and that's not a huge surprise, I think. But number two is that the origin of the crooked money that he's hiding, as you said, uh, comes from uh, Ukraine. But more specifically, it comes from Yanukovych, who you didn't use this term, David, but but we can I think it's safe to say he's a, a puppet of Putin's. Uh, he was a political puppet of Putin's. He was propped up by Putin. He fled back to Putin when he was ousted in Ukraine and so on and so forth. Um, and the services that Manafort was providing for this puppet of Putin's were lobbying on his behalf to influence U.S. government decision-making. Uh, and that's what he was lying about. You know, he didn't disclose that fact. He didn't file the necessary uh, registration as a foreign agent. He, he actively sought to cover that fact up from investigators. That's how he managed to pocket $75 million, which he then laundered and didn't declare and so forth. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, you know, it's a pretty big deal. And and it was in the news, you know, a while back that the team that the special prosecutor had assembled consisted of, uh, of a number of people who sort of cut their teeth on really complex money laundering and corruption cases. And my own, my own guess is that this is indeed the tip of the iceberg. Once that group of experts starts looking into the activities of other Trump associates, there's going to be a lot more that looks like this uh, coming down the pike. 
let me give each one of you a chance for your sort of first take on this, and then I want to systematically go through a few components of the indictment and the actions around it. David? Oh, well, first of all, um, Rosa said that um, he uh, laundered $75 million, but in the White House's defense, the indictment says he actually only laundered $16 million of the 75, leaving 18, us wondering. 18, 18, 18, 18. Oh, okay. 18 million. Leaving, leaving, us, right. leaving us to wonder what's going on with the next 57. <laughs> Presumably those will go to legal fees, right? Um, <laughs> still, still waiting to go into the laundry. <laughs> That's right. uh, and the methodology of doing this, um, for those deep staters who are listening to us, from tax havens uh, across the world, which is where I would assume the deep state radio listeners would would plug in from, uh, is that uh, I think he did some of this in St. Vincent's. Uh, there was a, it, it was sort of a, a collection of really good Caribbean beaches. Uh, no, there was Cy uh, Cyprus was also. and Cyprus was also which also has nice beaches. I want to point out, you know, modest political troubles, but good beaches. Um, so, uh, so what does this tell us? Well, first of all, we've entered an entirely new phase of the um, uh, of the investigation that will both make it far more tempting for the president to try to fire uh, uh, Mueller, the special uh, prosecutor, and far more difficult for him to go do it because at this point Mueller has now, in his first indictment, not taken somebody low level, but taken somebody who was the um, chairman, uh, unpaid chairman, as the White House points out, of the campaign. In fact, the only time I ever met Manafort, uh, I was going in to interview uh, uh, then uh -huh. candidate Trump. We finally yes. get you to admit to your admit. ties to Manafort. My, my, my ties to Manafort. <laughs> And he came. There he took my standing. They're standing outside the door of your hotel room right now, I, David. I was actually, I was actually wondering what those guys in the in the unmarked uh, sedan, who were wearing ties in the middle of Sunday night, were you know what they were all about. Um, but um, the only time I met him, it, it was sort of interesting. We um, we sat down and we began discussing something of substance like foreign policy, or you know, one of those conversations you'd have on deep state radio. And he immediately got up and left because policy was the least interesting <laughs> thing to Paul Manafort. Okay, Paul Manafort is all about um, politics and influence. And when you read through the indictment, I've only had a chance to go through it briefly. Um, what's pretty clear is that. He was doing everything he could to help Yanukovych not only uh, stay in power, but uh, move all of the um, political obstacles that they needed to move uh, around uh, sanctions that were then on uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, so I think one of the really interesting questions as this goes forward is, does Mueller now push this up the chain to activities that took place once Manafort was actually in the campaign. And we don't know that he's got anything for that. Certainly there was nothing in this indictment that takes you to the time period when he is acting on Trump's behalf. Uh, but you got to think well, that the, the, at, the, at the most, I, at, at the least, he can squeeze him on those issues. Well, let me, let me say a couple of things about that point. Maybe, Corey, you can pick up there. First of all, apparently, um, the federal investigation of Manafort on these issues began over a year ago, which was actually during the campaign. Uh, secondly, um, uh, clearly the Trump campaign was aware of this because Manafort ultimately left. But Manafort maintained ties with the Trump campaign 
afterwards and with Trump, even with Trump was in the White House. Uh, in addition to that, Gates, who was also indicted here, who's Manafort's deputy and was the deputy in the campaign, continued to work for the campaign and for pro-Trump PAC well into this year, into April of this year, even though they were fully aware of all of these things. Um, and so to say it, it doesn't intersect with it is not, I, I mean, I know what you're, you're getting at. There's no substantive smoking gun. But of yeah. course, there is also prior uh, to to uh, the you know official coronation of Trump in the um, platform committee uh, hearings during the Republican National Committee, a decision to uh, 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 alter the policy with regard to Ukraine uh, in a way that served the interests <coughs> of Manafort, campaign chairman, Gates, deputy campaign chairman, uh, and Manafort sponsors in Russia, including the Russian government, Oleg Deripaska, and all these others. And so there is one area where there's specific evidence of Manafort's influence or what is likely to have been Manafort or Gates's influence on a policy uh, associated with the campaign. It could be, David. It's just not in the indictment. I mean, that may, that may ultimately be the way they're headed, but it's in the indictment we saw it today, it's nothing about the policy positions taken in the um, in the campaign, in the the document before the convention, the party platform. No, no. Well, that's that's clearly true. But, Corey, to just to get your take on it, when this, you know, if you read the indictment, it is very clear that Russia is in his sights, Mueller's sights, from paragraph one onward. So, dug on it, David, um, that last salvo that you fired uh, disappointed me deeply because I've been sitting here fretting about what I could possibly contribute to the conversation since I am neither an associate dean of Georgetown Law School, nor am I a fiery sword wielding journalist of the first rank. Wow. Uh, and I thought the Ooh. only thing I could <laughs> add to this was um, the the fact that I remember so many um, Republicans being genuinely shocked during the Republican National Convention at the aggressiveness with which the Trump campaign forced a change in, you know, a, a traditional anti-Russian, you know, support for self-determination, people who are willing to fight for their freedom deserve our support as they fight for their freedom position on Ukraine. And that was the only policy issue that anybody in the Trump camp seemed to care about changing in the Republican platform. And they did it brutally, right, outflanking all sorts of important <coughs> Republican policy people and Republican political operatives. That was the big news of the RNC campaign among Republicans last summer. And, and so, you know, the one issue Russia cared about was the one issue the Trump campaign cared about. It may not be in the indictment, perhaps, because they're, they're hoping to pressure Manafort to, to reveal the connections. So, uh, but there's definitely a policy connection here. Okay, so let's let's circle around to the other side of this uh, 
case as it has evolved early in the week. Um, Rosa, uh, there was also uh, action on the case of George Papadopoulos, who may not be known to a lot of people. Uh, this could be because he graduated from DePaul University in 2009. Um, and yet really? somehow, yeah, um, and yet somehow became a presidential campaign advisor advising the foreign policy uh, uh, rich uh, campaign of Ben Carson for a while uh, before turning to Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, and while in Trump's campaign, he was the one who was agitating for meetings with Russians and, you know, you know, improving relations with uh, Vladimir Putin and and so forth. Um, and so it, it again, it, it I, I think it, it seems clear that Mueller is trying to send a message here that these are not random, that he is not off his brief um, and that, in fact, the fact that Papadopoulos has turned, apparently, um, according to some of the analyses that I've seen, uh, should be quite worrisome to others who are in the campaign uh, because Papadopoulos, I mean, clearly, I mean, th there was no reason for this kid to be in the campaign, right? They could have had Corey Shockey. No, David, that, that's so untrue. Uh, in 2012, <laughs> he represented the United States at the Model UN. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So he does have a high level of foreign policy experience. Yes. yes. And in fact, suggests that he's got far more of a pro-UN stance than anyone else associated with the Trump campaign. And by the way, oh, I want to come to... I want to come to the defense of my friend Corey, because even if this foreign policy expert had not joined the campaign, I have my doubts that Donald Trump could have convinced Corey Shockey to be his foreign policy advisor. I don't know why I think that, but there's something in my reporter's intuition that it would have been a tough argument. Is it part I see you my thanks, David. Is it, part, is it associated in some degree to the fact that she signed a letter saying, no way, never, I would never do that? Well, that's what the that that's what the letter said. You should have heard her after you poured a drink into her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, but all I can, always oh, a good strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, David. I you know. So on the one hand, Papadopoulos certainly makes an excellent villain, and and as someone who grew up on the the Tintin books. I can't help being reminded of one of the many arch villains in the Tintin series, or Tintin, as we French people say, uh, Rastapopoulos, Bel the Belgium. fiendish Rastapopoulos. Um, but this this guy more seems like an idiot uh, than a, a criminal mastermind of a vast global conspiracy. Um, so I don't. Does he know anything? Is he just a low-level criminal thug like so many others that, who seem to be associated with Trump? I don't know. And I am, in fact, going to make a bet here. Um, I, much delightful as it would be to me if a smoking gun emerged that proves definitively that Donald Trump was but a pawn of Vladimir Putin at all times, I doubt that's going to happen. I think Trump himself is too much of a corrupt idiot uh, to have had that. Well, David, let me ask you a question. But wait, well, let me make my bet here. My, okay. my bet is that although Trump will end up in legal trouble. It will not be for anything directly to do with Russia. It will be for the various forms of corruption, money laundering, and other financial crimes that, that will, and, and possibly lying and obstructing justice that will emerge as a result of this organization, but not as, not as a direct link to Russia. 
Well, I think that that may well be true, but you know, I think there is the, the there's an effect on a president when your campaign chairman, your deputy campaign chairman, one of your top foreign policy advisors, ultimately your national security advisor, um, it's the possibly and they're all tools of Russia. But possibly your son-in-law, et cetera, et cetera, all go down for these things. It does have an, an impact on the on the presidency. But David, let me pick up on a point that Rosa made. Um, Paul Manafort was known to have these ties. He was actively working on these issues for a long time. He accepted a role in this campaign for no money um, and maintained these ties long after. And by the way, when the president says, oh, I had no ties with him, Manafort had an apartment in the Trump Tower. Manafort had lots of ties. Trump sang the praises of Manafort. But but so they had a guy running the campaign who, as you say, wasn't that interested in policy, he was basically a behind the scenes guy. And he was obviously working with bad people, uh, people like Papadopoulos, who had no business being in this campaign. Um, and they were shaping policies and the actions of Trump. So I, what I'd like you to do is this. At some point today, tomorrow, next week, and for every week until this is over, the White House is going to say this has nothing to do with the president. Quite apart from collusion, what does this have to do with the president? Well, it, it may not have much to do with collusion. And even if there was collusion, collusion isn't a prosecutable crime under many cases. Conspiracy may be, but collusion is not. But if you found any evidence that the people that he brought in around him wittingly or unwittingly on the part of the president, ended up dramatically affecting policy toward Russia, then you'd have, at a minimum, a fascinating insight into what was happening in one of the most mysterious elements of the Trump foreign policy. And that is that he has managed to um, go after everyone for many different things that he perceived to be violations of uh, America's honor, America's sovereignty, American agreements, but he's not going after the Russians. And I'll just give you one example that doesn't even have to do with Ukraine. We've heard a huge amount about Iran violating in spirit, if not letter, the Iranian nuclear agreement. We have not heard from this administration almost anything about the Russians violating the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement in the letter, not just the spirit. Um, but there's a long list. And the president's only response to this has been, what's wrong with trying to have a better relationship with Russia? Nothing. What's wrong with not calling out the Russians for what they're doing? Lots. And that is really the central mystery of the Trump foreign policy. And this investigation may or may not, by the time we're done, shed some light on the people who made those policies. Okay, well, this is what I wanted to turn this into. This is what Deep State Radio is here for, to become a kangaroo court on the issues <laughs> on the issues of foreign policy. And you three are the esteemed justices of the kangaroo court on foreign policy. I think what David is making a good case for is that Donald Trump, quite apart from breaking the laws of the United States, has broken the laws of even commonsensical foreign policy, that there is an enemy of the United States, the enemy of the United States attacked the United States, it intends to continue attacking the United States. The vast sum of the evidence of the intelligence community is that 
uh, Russia, the Kremlin, uh, was was behind this attack and continues to want to be behind the attack. And the president of the United States, who is surrounded by people who are on the payroll of Russia, says, never happened. I don't care. I'm not going to enforce the sanctions the Congress has required me to put into place on this. I'm not going to do anything about it. I don't want to look at this enemy, call them out, or do anything. Quite apart from the law, isn't that a, 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 a felony of foreign policy malpractice, Corey Shafi? It most definitely is a felony of foreign policy malpractice. Unfortunately, that is not a prosecutable offense in this country, much less an impeachable one. You'll recall that... Uh, Former President Harry Truman, when commenting much later on the firing of General Douglas MacArthur, uh, Truman said uh, that uh, being a goddamn stupid idiot wasn't a crime for a general, because if it was, almost all of them would be in jail. Uh, and I feel like the same indictment can be brought against many presidential administrations for their foreign policy practice, none so much in the last 70 years as this one. But still, you know, we can indict Calvin Coolidge, we can indict all sorts of American administrations for stupid foreign policy. They, and, and that's not going to dent Trump. The thing that, nor is it going to diminish the proportion of my fellow Republicans who have allowed their views to wander on Russia because of President Trump's attitudes about Russia. So I think two things are going on. First, uh, I wholly agree with Rosa that the, that the stupidity of the criminals and grifters that we are observing and that and that the special counsel, special prosecutor, special counsel is investigating uh, are worthy of an Elmore Leonard novel. I just hope the movie version will be as funny as Elmore Leonard is funny. Um, it's not so far. It's just grim and tawdry and a debasing of American political norms. Okay, uh, but so Rose is exactly right about that. The second thing, though, is... The Russia collusion piece, I think you're right, David. It's hard for me to see President Trump actually being dumb enough uh, to, to put his hands directly on this. But it's not out of the question, right? The fact that he drafts Junior's letter of response on the Russia meeting, personally, that that seems to me, again... I'm I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a firebrand wielding journalist, but that seems to me pretty damning. Well, as does and Rosa brought this up earlier, as does the potential for obstruction of justice, which I predict here. You know, yes. and I, I don't have any uh, legal background to speak of. Um, I predict here that. Uh, uh, that will come to haunt the president of the United States. Well, I think he just can't resist. You see, he's just in the last hour tweeting out nutty tweets saying, you know, there was no collusion, all in capital letters. Uh, you know, that, that this is, I, I think that it is quite possible that he is both dumb enough and reckless enough to do all kinds of stupid stuff. 
which which again will will become a crime in and of itself just to try to keep this from turning into whatever it will turn into inevitably anyway. Well, and right, but I think the key point here and the point I think everybody is bringing up is collusion's not the core crime. It's not the only crime, and the president can talk about collusion all he wants because, um, and and he will because it may not be a crime, but the other things are. Uh, I want to. But it didn't ask, happen anyway, David. That's what he says. Yeah, good, good point. I want to ask you two questions. Um, one is a very quick question. In the indictment, it refers to the lavish lifestyle of Paul Manafort. Um, it also refers to him living in Alexandria, Virginia, where you live and I live. <laughs> and also, it's not and, my fault. And, and, and where the global worldwide intergalactic headquarters of Deep State Radio Network are. Um, really, is it that lavish? I was in the CVS last weekend. It's not a lavish CVS. The Halloween section was measly. Well, David, you waited too late. The Halloween section was much more lavish several weeks ago. Now only the pathetic things for the people who don't think about Halloween until the day before Halloween are there. Hey, you know, Rosa, give him a break. He is just upset that they were out of Manafort outfits. He wanted to wear one. <laughs> that was, yeah. that, that's true. They will, they will have a sudden increase in popularity on the Halloween. Well, all, all you need is a kind of an Elvis pompadour and a bad suit and, you, and your Manafort. Um, but but let me turn this to a legal question, uh, Rosa. You know, the indictment contains 12 counts. When I read the 12 counts in the indictment, it sounds to me like a warning to other people in the Trump orbit, uh, because each of them may be uh, vulnerable uh, in uh, one or more of these respects. But let me read them. It's Conspiracy against the United States, conspiracy to launder money, unregistered agent of a foreign principal, false and misleading FARA statements, false statements, uh, and seven counts of failure to file reports of foreign bank and financial accounts. Now, if you're Roger Stone and you've been a partner of Paul Manafort, all of these may be relevant. If you're Mike Flynn uh, and you didn't register as an agent of a foreign principal, and you've been comforting yourself. That you begin this is, to feel a tad uneasy. You might become a tad uneasy if you then see that Papadopoulos is like, you know, pleading to false and misleading, well, to false statements, and you're, you know, uh, Donald Trump or you're, say, Jared Kushner trying to explain why you haven't, um, uh, de you know, uh, declared uh, things as you should have in your security forms and so forth. Anyway, the, the point is to me, I, I think that Kushner and Stone and, and um, Carter Page and uh, Flynn and, and all these people have to read this thing and be a little bit queasy. Am I reading too much into it? No, I think you're absolutely right. And and um, they should be queasy. I think they're they're under the microscope and uh, based on what has come out uh, owing to the hard work of journalists, I think there's every reason to believe that they have been involved in some pretty similar and pretty serious financial wrongdoing. Um, I, you know, here's the interesting thing about this kind of crime, right? And I, <laughs> I say this both as a lawyer and, and in my role as part-time cop. Crimes poor people commit are obvious and they're easy to put them in jail for because there are often witnesses, they, involve, they often involve violence, uh, you know, they're visible, they're street crime, they're, you know, et cetera. Crimes that the super rich commit 
are often really invisible. You know, we call it white collar crime and things like embezzlement and laundering money and sophisticated forms of corruption. You know, that it's nobody notices it uh, most of the time. And, and so the irony of this is that, you know, Manafort's state was getting involved with Donald Trump at a moment when Trump was under scrutiny because he was uh, campaigning for and then became the president of the United States amidst all the allegations of Russian involvement. If that hadn't happened, if Manafort had stayed away from Donald Trump, he would probably be getting away with this crap today. And the same is true for all these other guys, you know, that, that journalists who have closely followed Trump and his family empire for many years will say Trump and his, and his sons and son-in-law have been engaged in similar kinds of uh, activities for many decades now. Well, not decades for the sons, obviously, but, you know, and, and they've been getting away with it. Uh, and we've got, there, there's a good deal of evidence of that. Um, and the only thing that has changed that is that now he's president of the United States and suddenly he's under a level of scrutiny that I don't think his affairs or those of his associates will be able to withstand. But for that, though, I mean, it does make you wonder as you read about the you know, unbelievable expenses for landscaping at his Hamptons uh, retreat uh, and the expenses for interior decorating that Manafort uh, uh, accrued using his ill-gotten gains makes you wonder how many other creeps are out there amongst the super rich getting away with exactly this kind of stuff. And I think the answer is a whole lot. You know, I was reading, David, the uh, Papadopoulos uh, uh, paperwork. And it's it's kind of interesting because Papadopoulos is pushing for Trump to go to Russia and high level contacts with Russia. And nobody, you know, in the Trump campaign, by the way, is saying, well, why is I wonder why he's doing all this stuff. And then there's this interesting footnote on the bottom of page eight uh, where it says the government notes that the official forwarded defendant Papadopoulos emailed to another campaign official without including defendant Papadopoulos and stated, let's discuss we need someone to communicate that DT is not doing these trips to Russia. It should be someone low level in the campaign so as not to send any signal. If I'm in, if I'm Donald Trump and I'm in the White House right now and I'm reading this stuff, I'm also getting queasy because it, it, this, you know, it, it is not just Manafort, it is not just Gates. Uh, and it is not just limited to Papadopoulos. He's obviously talking to other people. There's a lot of stuff going on. Rosa mentioned the meeting with Donald Trump Jr. We're just these are these are just the first few sort of fissures, uh, are they not? Um, you know, having spent a little time doing investigative journalism over my few few years doing doing this, these are exactly the kind of threads that you pull. And you pull on it largely from public documents. So that footnote, and I haven't read this indictment yet because I've been so wrapped up in trying to understand the other indictment. I haven't gotten to the Papadopoulos one yet. Um, that uh, That's exactly the kind of thing that you end up sort of pulling the string on to figure out exactly what set of policies, what set of visits they were discussing and who else was in that chain. And uh, it's not clear to me, David, from what you read, whether it's made obvious in the in the court document uh, who who else was wrapped up in that. But that would sort of tell you what the nexus is. In some ways, if you're Donald Trump and you're worried about the campaign right now, you may be more worried about the Papadopoulos plea of this 30-year-old 
because it takes you right into the campaign when he was running it than you are from what you've immediately read in the uh, in the Manafort indictment. Well, let me read you another piece of it, um, Corey. Uh, it goes here. Here is another point in in the Papadopoulos um, uh, uh, paperwork. Defendant Papadopoulos claimed that his interactions with an overseas professor who defended Papadopoulos understood to have substantial connections to the Russian government occurred before defendant Papadopoulos became a foreign policy advisor to the government. Defendant Papadopoulos acknowledged that the professor had told him about the Russians possessing, quote, dirt on then-candidate Hillary Clinton in the form of, quote, thousands of emails, but stated multiple times that he learned that information prior to joining the campaign. In truth and in fact, however, this is one of the lies that he told, Defendant Papadopoulos learned that he would be an advisor to the campaign in early March and met with the professor on or about March 14th. The professor only took interest in Defendant Papadopoulos because of his status with the campaign, and the professor told Defendant Papadopoulos about the emails on or about April 26, 2016, when the camp Papadopoulos had been with the campaign over a month. So of all the things talking about, you know, smoking guns, seems that's a kind of a state interesting uh, thing to lie about, eh? Yeah, two interesting points about that. The first is that the Trump campaign evidently knew about the Russian hack before anybody else knew about the Russian hack. So that may go to the collusion issue. Um, but second, they are clearly setting up the young, inexperienced, and dispensable members of this team, uh, which, right, like that's the seedy part about this. If this was a novel, if this was uh, the terrific novel about uh, modern Russia called Snowdrops that the economist Stringer in <laughs> Moscow wrote, uh, right, the these kids would be the tragic figures because they're the ones who are too inexperienced and too poorly morally grounded to understand what they're getting themselves into. And, and then they're the first to drown. And they think it's exciting and they're very special and important. Yep. Well, they're not just exciting. Apparently, also in this document, it says after his trip to Washington, D.C., defendant Papadopoulos worked with the professor and the, quote, female Russian national, we all know who that is, to arrange a meeting between the campaign and the Russian government and took steps to advise the campaign of his progress. This is in April. Of course, we know that a couple months later, um, or a few weeks later, actually, the meeting took place. Um, with uh, uh, Donald Jr. and Manafort and all these other people and a female Russian national. Um, and so having Papadopoulos sort of in the crosshairs here uh, has kind of uh, for, foreboding uh, implications. Um, and, and, you know, you're going to see a lot of these. Remember the picture of this tiny team of people advising who on foreign policy. Who was the person, deep state radio judges, who chaired the meeting on foreign policy um, that that took place? Trump was in the meeting, but wasn't it Jeff Sessions? I think it was. I don't know, but I, I, I do notice, and David, as, as you were talking, I'm skimming the Papadopoulos uh, 
uh, information on the special counsel's website. And the female Russian national was described by Papadopoulos as being, quote, Putin's niece. Wow. Jesus are keeping it all in the family. Well, know. that's because the Russian on government. On both sides of this. Exactly. They're all keeping it in the family. Exactly. It's the Russian government runs the same way the new U.S. government does with nieces and nephews and friends and oligarchs all in intertwined webs with one another. Um, you know, buying each other's houses, taking each other on vacation, making visits for one purpose while they were actually for another purpose. And that's why this is such a tangled web. Um, but I do just want to point out that nobody ever invites me to Russia or anywhere interesting. I get invited to places like Detroit, and I want to know why it is. That <laughs> hey, excuse me, you get invited to the Philadelphia main line. I mean, well, how that's much true. fancier could it be? <laughs> and by the way, okay, if here you continue, I am. I, if you continue. Aspen and Bellagio and prove just how much we are the establishment, my friends. <laughs> well, no, I was no, about to Rosa, we know you Aspen. were named for both. I deny it. We know you were named for both an incredibly virtuous American Rosa, but also Rosa Luxemburg. So so That's your true. vulnerability to the so having been to Bellagio may be greater than the rest of us who are just the, <laughs> the noble poor. Oh my God. Well, as I sit here in the Radnor Hotel, I, I, I am feeling some envy <laughs> from young Mr. Papadopoulos and his globetrotting ways. Well, all I can say is that... Um, we are at the beginning of a new chapter in this story. It has got many more chapters to go. Even as we're reporting this, you know, or talking about this, I watch Twitter and and up pops the picture of Papadopoulos in this meeting with Trump sitting next to Sessions. So Sessions must be feeling great today um, as well. Good thing he already recused himself, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so, folks, there are going to be plenty more discussions on Deep State Radio of this unfolding story. And fortunately, we've got the smartest people in the world, um, which is to say Corey Shockey, Rosa Brooks and David Sanger uh, here to help you untangle this and understand the substance of it. Uh, so join us again real soon, because we're going to keep this conversation going and updated as we um, must. Uh, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, David. And we'll be back with you real, real soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.